Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. Now we have a special couple of guests on the show today. Listeners to our episodes about QE for the people will remember that we briefly mentioned modern monetary theory as a new perspective on how economics works and I talked about getting some MMT speakers on the show to explore that in more detail. Now I was lucky enough to get the hosts of the MMT podcast, Patricia Pino and Christian Riley, who have interviewed many of the founding scholars and the most active economists in MMT as part of that brilliant podcast about which I've learned a lot from MMT just by listening to that. Now we had a very, very wide ranging discussion. They were incredibly generous with their time, which I'm grateful for. In our discussion, we'll be talking about some of modern monetary theory's big ideas, including why everything you were taught about where money came from and comes from is probably wrong, why your taxes technically don't pay for the things that you think they pay for, why the US and UK governments, in fact any government with its own currency, cannot really run out of money, and why maybe you shouldn't be so afraid of the national debt, and what the real limits on government spending actually are, along with, of course, why the current economic theories actually require millions of people to be long-term unemployed, and why policies like a universal jobs guarantee could provide employment for a lot of people, but also a way for the government to control the economy. I think all of this stuff is quite important to think about. As a result, I've split that episode into two episodes. The first deals with a bit of a background of MMT, exploring the historical and anthropological question, where does money come from, and some of the consequences that flow from that. And the second episode, which is longer, deals with the consequences of modern monetary theory for our society, some ideas of how it could be used to run economies more effectively and solve many of the biggest problems that we face in the world. And it's therefore slightly more political, so there is a content warning there if you don't want to hear any discussion of politics. But I think really you should, because as we discuss in those episodes, regardless of which end of the political spectrum you come from, having a real understanding of how the actual economy works is crucial so that you can actually be an informed voter and an informed, engaged person engaging in the uh, the social and political economy that we all have to live in. So I think regardless of where you sit on that spectrum, it's important. Now, I realise that this podcast is not primarily an economics podcast, and it's never been billed as such. And I don't think that we're going to have that many economics episodes coming after this, by the way. But I have been convinced, especially recently, that so many of the concerns that we have been talking about recently, this intersection between technology, inequality and global catastrophic risks, the necessity of dealing with climate change and so much else in the world, is that it is necessary to have a deeper understanding of economics, which is in the background of so much that's going on in the world. MMT, to my mind, when it's properly interpreted and described, makes some points that the classical understanding of economics just misses out on. And even if you disagree with it, I think it's a fascinating area. I have certainly been fascinated by learning more about it, and I hope that you find our conversations here valuable. 
as ever, if not, if you think I should uh, abandon all this stuff and, and put it into a different podcast, if, if that's your opinion, or alternatively, if you like the sort of things that we're doing, expanding the range of topics that we cover here, you can always get in touch with me via the contact form on physicspodcast.com and let me know what you think. Or, you know, you can just wait a few days and we'll have a different episode available for you on a different subject. Just don't ask for your money back, because podcasts are free. Without further ado then, the first part of the interview. First of all, I'd like to thank you both very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. So modern monetary theory, or MMT, is essentially a new way of looking at economics. Um, It's advocates, which include you guys, you host the MMT podcast, which explains this and interviews lots of the key leading figures in it, um, insist that it's really just a correct description of what's going on in the real economy. But it does make a number of claims about how the economy works that a lot of people consider to be counterintuitive. And so I think it's going to be a good springboard for us to start talking about what's different between MMT and mainstream economics and how it differs from people's general understanding. And I think a lot of people are going to say, well, this is quite abstract where we're talking about different theories of economics and which one is valid and so on. But but Keynes, the famous economist, has, has a quote that I think is very relevant to this, which is, he said something along the lines of, the ideas of economists and political theorists, whether they are right or wrong, are more powerful than is commonly believed. Indeed, the world is run by little else. So we could be talking about some potentially pretty world-changing stuff here, and I'm sure you guys would agree with that. And I think everyone should come at this with a bit of an open mind. Um, maybe you don't agree with everything that MMT says about the economy. Um, as, as someone who's not a professional economist myself, I'm not sure I know enough to say that it's a perfect description. But unless you think that our status quo descriptions of economics, which uh, aren't always that successful at making predictions and so on, are perfect, I think it's worth listening to ideas from outside the status quo and seeing what you think. Um, but before we get into some more details about MMT, I'd like to ask for a little bit of backstory so the audience can get to know you both a bit better. So you guys host the MMT podcast, which has been a really great resource for me to get my head around all of this. And over the course of doing that, you, you've interviewed many of the key economists behind MMT to get them to explain it in their own words. So I want to ask you both, how did you first hear about MMT and come to be converted? Because it is often sort of expressed like a conversion uh, to this new way of thinking about economics? Just, you know, like a lot of people, I became interested in in economics after the 2008 crash. And I think uh, uh, a lot of people had a lot of questions. And if you remember back then, you know, it was after the crash, it was all about um, the budget and it was the beginning of the, the, the long period of kind of extreme austerity that we've had. So this idea that the priority was to balance the books um, was heavily debated in, in, in politics, but um, it wasn't, you know, nobody really explained it in a way that made sense to me. And it seemed like they, they seemed to repeat the same slogans, we need to balance the budget, but nobody would explain why, or the debt is too high. Well, what is too much, too high debt? I mean, at, at what, how do we know that? Um, and it seemed to me obvious, maybe because of, um, I'm an engineer. I approach things uh, in a very kind of practical way. Um, that if we're going to cut spending, then short, you know, if we're going to to cut services which are important to people that to to people with low incomes. Then we better make sure that the debt is too high. You know, we're not cutting things unnecessarily, and that kind of led me into a. A path of curiosity with economics, and uh, I, I first approached friends of mine who had studied economics. They didn't have the answers that I needed. Um, then I started investigating other routes, you know, and 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 I found that the, the mainstream narrative of economics didn't really didn't really make sense 
in my head as a as a whole. It, it, it seemed to me there were too many too many holes in the narrative, and um, so that's how I remember that a friend of mine had mentioned uh, Bill Mitchell's blog, um, and I had at the time dismissed it uh, because because that is a natural reaction, I guess, to to the notion that taxes don't fund government spending. But then I thought, well, you know, I, I've kind of hit a wall here. Let's let's try and um, and see whether this this guy actually has something something to to tell me that 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 might solve my problem. So I gave the blog a second look, and it, it's I don't recommend it as a first kind of text for anybody because it's very heavily laden with um, kind of complex terminology, like proper academic economics terminology, but um. But I pal, I, I you know, I powered through it, and I forced myself to 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 read it in detail. And you know, these concepts just um, it took me a while to absorb them. And I think we have this. It, it's funny because it kind of the the whole thing made sense on one evening when I was at home, and it's like the penny dropped, and suddenly I felt like, you know, I have to tell this to everybody. You know, this makes so much sense, and it made sense in a way that the mainstream narrative didn't make sense and and then you start building upon that idea and and you start realizing that everything that you've been told is pretty much a lie and as you say and I completely kind of relate to that Kynes idea of um, that that economists have more power you know they're more powerful than commonly believed these ideas this disbelief underpins everything else that works on it. So um, I'm an engineer for a profession and I can see how my fellow engineers have a really strong interest in helping people and, and solving world problems, but they all work within this framework of, you know, government budgets have to be balanced and, and, and it really limits them and it limits them in a way that they don't even realize it and they don't have the knowledge or the understanding to challenge those things. So I really felt when I came across these ideas that it, this was important. It felt like this was something that I needed to shout it from the rooftops and, and tell everybody. Yeah, my story is similar. Yeah, I was wondering what was going on in 2008 when they were telling us there's no money. and, uh, <laughs> and But also there was loads of money at the same time. Um, <laughs> I, I was like, what is this? Schrodinger's pound, uh, just depending <laughs> on who looks at it. Uh, it, it exists or it doesn't. I started reading the Naked Capitalism blog because that's got a lot of heterodox economists writing on it. And then I uh, came across a talk by, first of all, I, I came across a talk by Michael Hudson. Uh, I found a really good conference that they had in 2010 called the Fiscal Responsibility Conference. And at this conference, uh, it was kind of a counter-conference to um the uh i think the pete peterson foundation was uh hosting a conference across town this is in washington i think uh, uh, about um what we've got to fix the debt i.e we've got to wipe it out uh pay it down and there there are obviously all these as we now know them post-keynesian economists who were like no no you don't want to do that <laughs> and uh, post-keynesian means they're following the work of keynes uh they're you know, uh, Keynes himself would be a post-Keynesian, and um, and uh, on this conference there was Bill Mitchell, Stephanie Kelton, Warren Mosler, uh, Marshall Auerbach, and Pavlina Chernova, and Randy Ray on this panel, 
and maybe I don't know how many people were in attendance, probably below a hundred people. Just it was, but the, these uh, they just an excellent lineup, and um, and they go through MMT and and what you know what would a fiscally responsible uh, 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 situation look like, um, and uh, and about. I don't know, about an hour into it, Warren Mosler comes on and he does this great talk about turning his business cards into money, which uh, I, I go on and on about on the podcast. It's like my favorite MMT thing. And I thought there are people out there when they talk, you go, you realize this person wants me to understand something because there are some people out there who are like, yeah, maybe they want you to understand something, but it seems more of a priority that they let you know that they're really clever. And they shroud a lot of what they're saying in, in words that sound really, you know, endogenous, exogenous. You know, you're like, oh, well, this person's really clever. And it's there are other words we could use, <laughs> you know. Um, and um, yeah, so physics has this problem too. It's like, oh, is it right? Okay. <laughs> and and, and um, so you know, I, I started trying to decipher all this stuff. The rest of it, when you understand that you know the government's a currency issuer. How can it be any other way? Um, uh, you kind of go, oh, right, okay, and then and then you have to just work through everything you think you know about everything. I think it's interesting you, me- you mentioned uh, uh, naked capitalism, Eve, Eve Smith, I think, um, and I was just reading her book Econed, and the interesting thing at the start of that book is that you do realise how accurate this Keynes quote is about the ideas of economists and political theorists being so important because you can see how much of the uh, the last 30, 40 years has been sort of dominated by a lot of neoclassical ideas of economics about free markets being very efficient and that's how we should do things and, and uh, you know, people being rational actors, this sort of homo economicus idea where everyone is running around maximising their own self-interest and the government only gets in the way. And these are sort of ideas that people have um, internalised without even realising it, I think, in some cases, and that certainly influence a lot of how governments have behaved really since since uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher sort of created that axis of this sort of thing in the 80s. Um, and I think it's just interesting that we we see whenever there's a crisis, you have economists showing up with new ideas. You know, Keynes himself comes out of the, the Great Depression and the post-war and all this sort of thing, and how, how are we going to deal with these issues? And we, we, we're in another crisis at the moment, and it seems like a moment when new ideas and new uh, economic theories could, could be really valuable to... I mean, just shed a different perspective from what we have at the moment, which you know, is not necessarily working to solve the problems that, that we're facing as a society. So, I mean, you guys, you're communicators of this theory, and um, I think we want to sort of explain the 101 of it. So there's a couple of ways to get people intrigued by it initially. And one of the main routes in that, that I've heard you guys discuss before is to ask the question, where does money come from? Would you like to talk about why this question of where money comes from can shed insight onto how MMT works and is different from classical economics. You know, MMT is different to all the other schools in that Bill Mitchell, Randall Ray and Martin Watts put out a a textbook called Macroeconomics. It's just called Macroeconomics. And apparently the subtitle was going to be Macroeconomics, a government-centered approach, i.e. 
it, you know, the the MMT money story starts with the government, and and none of the other, like you were just saying, since certainly since the eighties, they've been thinking about money in a it, it just is money's just there. It evolved out of barter, and the government is now trying to get in on that act and get a piece of your money that you've created uh, as the private sector, and that's how they get to spend money. You know, and if if you guys out there in the private sector don't do uh, things that uh, make make value and, and turn it into money, then they don't have any money, any tokens to spend. And so wealth is created by the private sector and then sort of taxed out a bit by the government yeah, and the government extracted. is stealing wealth yeah. generated from the private sector. And MMT obviously takes a very different view to how all of this stuff works. Yeah. I don't know. Do you want to take it from there, Patricia? I think the difference is that, so MMT, I, I feel that it, it, it kind of takes a, the opposite approach as neoclassical, like the mainstream economics would take in the sense that um, the, they seem to have simply devised this theory about perfect markets and all this stuff that they kind of would like to be true from an ideological perspective. And then simply said, well, how do you explain money? Uh, well, it's just kind of put in there a, a hypothetical story that would fit with our ideology without actually taking too much interest to check the historical basis for that belief. And um, so uh, the they think that money just sparked out of markets kind of <laughs> by spontaneous combustion. And um, so people were trying to trade the goods and services that they had in a sort from of barter. I don't yeah. know, in, a, in, a, in an ancient society where you have one person who makes the bread and one person who does the farming and all this sort of thing. People realized that they couldn't come up with decent exchange rates for all of the possible goods and services. And so they came up with money. That's the neoclassical yeah. picture. Yeah, yeah, that it was um, impractical to be carrying around goods to barter, but they just created this thing to be make it easy to exchange and the MMT picture instead says, okay, well, money comes from the state. Money is invented by the state. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, f first of all, we should back up and, and talk about uh, David Graeber, the late David Graeber, um, yeah. uh, wrote a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. And uh, there's a key chapter in there, I think it's chapter three, called The Myth of Barter. And I think that's a good way in for some people because really... I have it on my bed. It's chapter two. Is it right? Great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really early on in the book. It's a good debunking of this idea that money evolved from barter. Because really, at the at the bottom of it, it's like, how would that happen? You know, people continuing to just raise pigs, just do that one thing, uh, but and not make clay pots or anything like that. And then people on the on the other side of town that don't know you or just making clay pots, hoping that they can trade them for a pig. And, you know, and, and, and of course, the person with the pigs doesn't want the, the, them in the color that you've made. So now you're sitting around starving. He's sitting around with nothing to cook his pigs in. And, you know, and you're both starving. And, you know, how, how would this even happen? Uh, David Graeber pulls out these um, uh, quotes from current economics textbooks. This is before uh, Mitchell and Ray and Watts wrote their textbook. And they've all got passages in like, imagine you've got bread, but you want roses. <laughs> imagine you've got, and, and wouldn't that be an awful world? And and he, he, go, he goes through a list of them and it's all imagine, 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 imagine. And he's going, yeah, you have to imagine. You have to imagine it because I'm telling you as an anthropologist, and I'm not actually the first, that that's not how it happens. There's no evidence for that, you know, that that this happened. And 
the chapter before the myth of barter or and and the kind of the rest of the book talks about yeah people you know that didn't have money in their uh, arrangements you know societies tribes things like that did do things that looked like barter they would swap things but they were ceremonial you know and it's not what money evolved out of and randall ray who's you know the, one of the primary mmt scholars says um you, you know he's he's gone deep into the history of money and he's got like the earliest writing is people keeping track of who owes what to who you know and um like the very first writing we can discover and his little joke is writing wasn't invented by poets it was invented by accountants and so he, he's saying you know ledgers were, were came first you know which is more like what we've got now modern money you know it's not you know not a lot of it is is on an electronic ledger and very small amounts of it compared to the rest of the money supply is where people have gone actually i'd like to carry a bit of my bank balance around with me in my wallet so they you know they break off a piece of what they've got stored on that electronic ledger and take some cash out of a hole in the wall and that's part of your bank statement um so um yeah so so you've got this government-centered approach and i I will i'll just quickly say this one because i think it's got a lot of explanatory power what warren mosler does when he explains money he goes, uh, he takes his business cards out of his wallet and he goes, I've got a business card. It's one of my business cards. He goes, would anybody like to stay after and clean the floor? I'll pay one of these per hour. And then he goes, look, there's no takers. Or I'll pay two per hour. No takers. Ten per hour. No takers. And he goes, okay, I'm going to add one more thing. Uh, there's only one door out of here and there's a man at the door with a nine millimeter machine gun and he works for me. And you can't get out of the room without paying him one of these business cards. Now he wants to work for me. And of course, everybody needs to work now. And he goes, the guy at the door is the tax man. And the tax man turns litter into money. And and that that whole idea is called chartalism. And if you go back to, I, I would believe the first economics book is really Wealth of Nations. Um, you know, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. And there is a line in there about, um, about, uh, a prince who should enact that a certain portion of taxes paid to him should be paid in a certain type of paper money can give value to that paper money so right there in that first that's a, a vague paraphrase um but um right there in the first economics book this thing that's known as chartalism this idea that taxes drive a, a need for currency and that allows the authority that issued it to spend it uh goes goes right back you know Keynes himself joked yeah for the last 4000 years at least we've had modern money you know early authorities right up to the nation state these authorities have been deciding what is and isn't money because money's a creature of law really and a cre- and, and now in in our time and place it's a creature of nation states so i hope that made sense so just to sort of put across these two competing ideologies right next to each other so that we can see what they look like. The classical one, which we think is wrong now, is this idea that people invented money as a system for exchanging goods amongst themselves and bartering these goods, and they decided that they needed a token of exchange, which was money. And then governments came along later and started taxing people in money, and they took the money from the private sector and they started spending it themselves on whatever they wanted, Uh, for example, maintaining a standing army. And the example that we would have is you say, okay, well, imagine instead you are a Roman emperor, for example, is a good uh, example of this sort of thing, because they minted coins with their own face on all the time. Um, And you run the state, 
you could ask for taxes in the form of what people are producing, but instead you invent a token, which is the coin, which is the money system that you're printing centrally as, as a government, as a Roman emperor, um, and you insist that tax liabilities, the taxes that people have to pay, must come in the form of the currency that you yourself are printing. And that is what gives the currency value. So it, it flows out from the government into the rest of society. For example, when the Roman emperor is paying his troops in, in coins, which they can then go and spend. And, and it's given value by the necessity for everyone to pay their taxes in that currency. And so one of the interesting consequences of this idea is that once you have this, then in, in a sense, the taxes, the taxes that we pay don't exist to fund government spending. Um, but instead, they sort of exist to give the money value. Do you want to sort of elaborate on that and the, and the consequences of it? I think that you know, if you, if you compare those two stories, you have in the first one uh, the the idea that that government kind of came in and ruined it for everybody when it, when the market was free and 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 nothing you know everybody was happy you can see the ideology showing in the history <laughs> and then in in the second one you have you know the notion something that actually economists say now that there is no such a thing as free market that that the free market relies on first of the enforcement of contracts law and also um, in our case what we're saying is that the government is the one that says how many how much the currency is worth so um, depending on what the government is taxing and then um, what it sets, what is willing to pay for labor, the government is the monopoly issuer of the currency. And therefore it gets to dictate how much currency you get when you work per hour. So, um, so by, by stating that, it can then mobilize the resources that it needs. And by increasing or decreasing taxes, it, it, um, it adjusts the, the, the value of the currency in that, in that sense. Um, we know this is how it works now. So we don't even have to have that argument. <laughs> you know, that we know that when the bank, yeah. when, when the government spends, uh, it, you know, it tells the Bank of England to credit bank accounts and the recipients of the spending and they, they type it in. And that, that's where it comes from, uh, you know, a keystroke at a central bank. And the coronavirus should have really shown this to everyone, right? Because we've seen the government immediately just print billions upon billions of dollars. It hasn't had to collect yep. taxes in from people yeah. beforehand to spend uh, that yeah. money. As well, you know, they can't plan the spending by number of pounds because they don't know how many people are going to tap into their pension tomorrow precisely you know they don't know how many people are going to claim you know all, all kinds of payments from the government so you know they actually don't know what they're going to spend tomorrow <laughs> you know a lot of these things are automatic they don't know who's going to go on the dole and, and things like that so yeah the spending just happened because the currency is issued by a monopolist taxes drive currency in that you need to get these tokens we'll call them pounds here in the uk in order to pay your taxes so that that gives them value it gives you a need to get them but doesn't actually say what that value is going to be of the money out in the marketplace so what warren mosler says is the price level is a function of prices paid by government when it buys something or collateral it demands when it lends so it, it, um, I'm going to try and put it as simply as I can. 
you know, if the government is employing a data entry clerk at, at, at I don't know, twenty pounds an hour or something like that, then you know it would be hard for the market to offer lower than that uh, because you know that's you know that's what the government's paying for it, and it buys a box of pencils and it buys all these things, and uh, this matrix of prices paid it, it, every time it. It, it fixes on a price like that it is t- it is communicating something about the value of its currency so again warren will uh, will say you know if the uh he tells this little anecdote about he was in italy giving a tour with his wife and the tour guide took him around some of the old ruins in pompeii and there was a group of people and there's a the tour guide pulls out a coin. And he goes, "Look, we found these coins in the in you know in the street, you know, as we dug through the the, the lava or whatever it was that you know encased encased uh, 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 Pompeii, and we found these coins in the street. And um, you know, basically, the government would uh, tax people, take their coins, and then spend them." Uh, and employ people to be police and and people to keep the you know pay the sanitation workers and build the aqueduct and that's why Pompeii was a really nice place to live because the government took taxes off people and spent it on public goods and Warren goes I'm a bit of a troublemaker I I said actually that's not how it worked <laughs> so so he goes I, the government spent the money first and then collected taxes and the tour guides going well that how that's not right is it and he goes well look at the coin where did it come from. <laughs> You know, and he goes, well, the government made it. He's like, yeah, okay. So how would anybody ever get this money to spend? All right, okay. So they spent the money first and then took them in. And he goes, yeah, that's that's how how else could it work? And, uh, you know, apparently they had a bit of a ding dong and the guy wouldn't listen to him for the rest of the trip. Uh, The idea is that, you know, the government are going, uh, you know, they levy a tax on people and go, look, you've got to pay – you know, you've got to pay two of these every week, two of these to back to the back to the authority. Well, and then they and then the government has to say what they need to do to get the coins. Yes, they're setting the prices by exchanging them for the goods and services that are requisitioned by the government. So, well, the government's going to want to have, like, say, police, right? Straight away, it's going to want security. So they go, um, you know, okay, we'll pay two of these for for a day's soldiering. Okay, so now that's what it's worth. And somebody else might go, I don't want to be in the army. I want to raise chickens. So I'm going to see how much I can charge for chickens and the, and, and sell it to a soldier who's actually earning the coins that I need to pay the tax. And, you know, that's how the whole market system develops. That's how the whole private sector develops, you know, all this stuff that the government's not paying for. So, for example, in uh, in Latin America, um, in, in we had the Incan Empire, and um, they had a system of taxation which was actually um, about um, time of labor. So, um, um, people were made to work for the government one month out of every year, growing food for the government to store in their in their big storage houses and the rest of the time they were free to work for themselves you know to to feed the families etc but one month a year what they produce had to go to government and they kept track of this in, in in a system of knots um but what if instead the government had simply said uh you everybody owes me a a coin you know this arbitrary thing and and you have to pay me one of these every year 
And and again, I'm going to pay you one of these for one month worth of, of product if you work one month for this um, storage houses. So, you know, he, they're imposing a need to pay a tax and then they're saying how much the coin is worth, a month worth of work. So that that's kind of the way that the government would then set the prices indirectly for the rest on, on which the, the rest of the market prices would be based upon. If people have to work one month for the government in order to obtain that coin, then they would measure all of the prices within the marketplace against that arbitrary level set. Yeah, by government. yeah the, the government only needs to set one price and everything else is going to adjust around it. So we have this now, we have this alternative picture of where money came from historically and where it comes from today from the government, uh, spent into existence by the government uh, in MMT. And I think the, the consequences of this is what I really want to talk about now. So I think one of the ideas that people, mainstream economists, and particularly anyone who's of the sort of Austrian school, I guess you'd say, would find yeah. so offensive, is this idea that the government doesn't have to worry about balancing its budget. Um, the <laughs> government deficit and debt is not necessarily something that we have to be concerned about. And I think even here in the UK, you know, there was a frightening headline that came out the other day about the debt crossing two trillion pounds for the first time. We have the Chancellor Rishi Sunak saying that we'll need to make difficult decisions in the future to pay for the coronavirus crisis, which we're saying at the moment, which sounds a lot like more austerity after the 10 years of austerity that followed the global financial crisis in 2009. Uh, I have a lot of listeners in the US as well. And you guys there will know that the there's constantly an argument over the deficit ceiling and the debt ceiling and um, whichever party it's convenient for seems to be happy to expand the government debt while the other one uh, plays this role of being fiscally responsible and not wanting to expand the government debt um, whenever it suits Democrats or Republicans to to take on either of those roles. Um, and this is based on this sort of false idea that the government has finances like a household and that its wages are like taxes and that it has to sort of pull in these taxes to to provision itself. Um, and and of course that borrowing money for the government is 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 sort of bad and unsustainable. And I think this has been a driving force in our politics for you know at least since the global financial crisis and and even before. Um, so when you have all of this, the idea that it might be wrong is obviously upsetting to a lot of people. Um, so I'd, if you'd like to talk about kind of the first thing I think that might even be most important to talk about is obviously the sort of household analogy of finances being wrong, but also just what government debt actually is because when, when when you hear about government debt people constantly think about well who do we owe this money to and people might vaguely think well do we owe it all to china or do we owe it all to you know some some other country and um when does it have to be paid by on what terms and all this sort of thing is is not entirely clear to people and i think it links into this other concept of of monetary sovereignty which we also need to to discuss so i realize that's quite an unwieldy question but We'd like to talk about government debts and deficits and where they fit into this picture of MMT. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I'd like to just maybe talk a little bit about the household analogy because it's something that I feel like we've been battling with that from the beginning. And it, it it's really frustrating because I don't think any economist believes in it or speaks in these terms. It's, it's only reserved for politicians. And I think that um, economists let politicians use that analogy because partly because some of them think it's just instrumental for people to just believe that and 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 once people believe that then they stop asking questions so if the government says there is no money for the nhs 
it's easier than to say, we don't believe in the NHS and we'd like to defund it. <laughs> so it's easier to justify those difficult decisions that Rishi Sunak says he has to make, even though they are completely in line with his ideology, you know, rather than explain to the public the ideological basis for those decisions. And um, so some economists let um, politicians um, explain it in those terms and simplify it to the point where it becomes a lie. And and, and other other economists, um, I think, to be honest, I, I think they don't really trust the public with the information with or they don't believe that the, pub, the, the public is able to explain to understand any anything more in depth than that. Um, there, there is this um, fear, even amongst what you might consider progressive economists or lefty economists, that if you let the people know that money is no issue, then, uh, then how are you going to get politicians to be disciplined? Right? How, how, why wouldn't they just spend on everything and, and cause inflation and destroy everything? And, and they think this keeps um, the, the, the bad politicians in line as well, you know, that um, they fear that they might just give tons of money to the rich. And, and because there is no, nothing to worry about in the budget, then, um, then nobody would say anything because what's there to worry about? And, and I think that's a very, first of all, condescending way of talking to the electorate. I don't think that helps the electorate to make the right decisions at all. And, and it actually makes people vote against their own interests most of the time, as we have seen in, uh, in, in 2010 and, and in the last election. Um, but the, uh, the other thing is that, you know, they also don't have an inherent mistrust for democracy. And um, I, they, I have this feeling that they, they have this idea that, that the least people know the better. And I, I really resent that. And I think that, that that's something that we have to clear up. Yeah. So, you know, it, it becomes a question of how do we break through this household analogy? Because it's really powerful. And, you know, I have a pet theory that it's just because our experience with money is we have to get it from somewhere. You know, if we're lucky and we grow up in a nice family environment, we get pocket money off our parents. And then when we grow up, we have a job and uh, we get money off our employer or we might go self-employed. We get money off our customers. And, uh, you know, when we pay money for things, when we're in that position of earning money, we think we're doing what our parents did for us. We're giving money, you know, we, you know, and, and we, we never drill down into it and go, well, where did it come from? Because it's a thing. I can hold it in my hand or I can, you know, um, take it to the bank and they can just tally up how much of it I've got. Uh, it's a real thing. It moves stuff. It moves resources around in this economy. You know, try being without it. In fact, it's impossible. You'll starve. Um, and so, but we never go like, you know, where does it come from? So I've, I've given you all these stories or we've given you these stories about business cards and gold coins or, or just coins found in Pompeii and um, and people kind of go well that's nice that's a nice analogy but uh, you know even for maybe a more sophisticated listener who's who's kind of having trouble with going well look you know it's all computers now and stuff well, I think we all agree even the Austrian uh, school economists agree that the central bank sets interest rates they, there's a thing called the Monetary Policy Committee, and they decide every, I think, six weeks uh, whether they're going to raise or lower interest rates by or keep them the same. Um, and uh, in order to be able to do that, they, they have to add or drain reserve balances from 
the system, the res- the reserve system, um, and that it's a little bit complicated. So I won't go any further with that. But you know that is how they target interest rates. They decide on a target, and then they do. Uh, what's called offsetting operating factors all day, you know, open market operations, uh, buying bonds, selling bonds in the secondary market to make sure that they maintain the interest rate they said they were going to hit. And they also have an inflation target, which is 2% generally. And um, if they don't hit their 2% inflation rate target, are they overshooted or undershooted by a certain extent? They have to write a kind of, we're really sorry type letter (laughs) to the chancellor. (laughs) <laughs> and um, you can go on the Bank of England's website and see the history of those letters and stuff. And just for everybody's information, they've been undershooting their inflation target ever since quantitative easing, which, you know, 2008, which MMT has a solid explanation for why that is when everybody else. And which everybody yeah, thought would exactly. cause hyperinflation. Yeah, because yeah. everybody said cute. Yeah, if we could just get onto this quite quite quickly, because we had a couple of episodes earlier on, our main sort of economics episodes so far have been about quantitative easing. And this, again, is another example of where you can get into confusion and because effectively quantitative easing is, in a sense, the government printing money to buy up bonds. We don't um, like that word. Well, we, you know, what we no. would say is they're, they're, not, they're not printing money to what, say, somebody like Warren Mosler would say. Who I keep talking about, but he is the founder of MMT. He had the, the original insights by you know looking closely at central bank operations. Is that the the bonds themselves are money? You know, it, it, you could say they're printing money if you don't count the bonds as money. But and this will sort of like help you if you, if you let me just spin this out a little bit. This will help you understand the national debt and the difference between the de- debt and the deficit. Uh, um, I think. Uh, Professor Stephanie Kelton, who's just written her book, The Deficit Myth, which I think is just a perfect, you know, if you've never come across MMT before and you want to know what it's all about, it's a perfect uh, book to read. You know, she's giving a lecture or giving a talk or something. She'll go, right, okay, so here here are my uh, dollars. And she's got 10 pieces of paper and they're yellow. And she goes, I'm going to spend 10 into the economy. I'm the government, you're the private sector. And she nominates a person in the audience to be the private sector. I'm going to spend 10 I'm going to tax back seven. There's three left over. Uh, I'm running a deficit of three. Who's got the three? And the person holds it up. You've got the three, right? You guys. So my deficit, you know, I'm, I'm spending more than I'm uh, getting in. Um, my deficit is your surplus. So that, And that's true in real life. And you can look at it. There's a very sort of widely shared graph uh, chart that goes around the MMT community of these sectoral balances. And, but, you know, when the government deficit goes up, the private sector savings go up or the non-government sector savings go up to buy the same amount to the penny because they're accounting identities. So, so first of all, that's the deficit. You know, when the government spends more than it takes back in taxes, that money is now in the pockets and the bank accounts of the private sector. And, um, and then Stephanie goes, okay, so we do this thing these days that we don't have to do, but we do it anyway. <laughs> um, we now there's a deficit of three. I'm running a deficit of three. So I'm the government. I now have to go into the market and sell three of these. And she holds up yellow pieces of paper and she goes, these are yellow dollars right? These are better than the $3 that you've got. These are bonds, government bonds, right? These ones pay interest. So 
you, you're going to want to buy these because they're better than money. They're money that pays you money. So I go into the market and I, I, I sell three of these. Now you've got the yellow dollars. I don't need the green dollars that you just gave me for them. They just go in the shredder. Um, and now you've got those. And then when they mature, you know, I'll be able to pay back, you know, what I said, I would pay back plus interest because, you know, it's a spreadsheet. We're not going to run out of money. Uh, we're not going to run out of, of uh, spreadsheet entries to uh, to pay back your the the interest. So, so I think that is a really in, uh, a sort of good way to break through the complications about what bonds are. So, so you've just swapped green dollars for yellow dollars. Green dollars don't pay interest. Yellow dollars do. So, uh, it, you could call that money printing, but it's not really. It's it's just swapping the you know, swapping non-interest dollars for interest-bearing dollars. And um, she also then go asks her students a question uh, sometimes where she goes, I've got a magic wand in my hand. If you could wave this wand and have the uh, government debt wiped out, would you wave it? And loads of people go, yeah, I'd wave that wand, you know. And then she goes, okay, um, if I could wave this wand and there would be no more treasury securities ever again, U.S. Treasury securities. Would you waive the wand? And some of them cotton on that it's the same question, <laughs> and some of them it takes them a minute. But you know, basically, the the private sector loves this risk free investment vehicle called the U.S. Treasury security. You know, it's money that pays you money. So you know, on the one hand, people are, are you know, oh, the debt's so big, but the debt really is these, you know, wonderful interest-bearing pounds that is just really what MMT is saying is just a free lunch for people who already have money. But when we see that sort of government debt figure of, of however many trillion dollars it is, this is, you know, mostly or all in the form of, of bonds that have been bought by people and are being held as assets. And this is why you don't really see the government debt necessarily, you know, declining over time. I mean, you can go back to uh, stories in the in the 1980s and the 1970s and so on when the the debts of the US and the UK were, were smaller and people were saying okay well eventually we're going to reach a point where this debt is unsustainable and it has to be paid off in some sense but that's sort of not what has ever happened we've just carried on expanding this debt and in a sense when we expand the debt what we're really doing is expanding the supply of government bonds rather than the the notion that you might have of debt as sort of privately held debt where your debt is the amount of money that you have to pay back to other people. I think they make a parallel between private debt and government debt when in fact they're like the complete opposites, right? Uh, so a government debt is our savings and Warren Mosler would say government debt is the net money supply. You know, there's money supply after you take out all the liabilities. And um, so uh, this idea that, oh, fear, fear this big number that I've got here, <laughs> because it's big and um, and you're going to have to pay it in taxes in future. It, it bears really no basis in reality because um, the, ta the, the interest is actually paid through newly created money. So there, there is taxes don't actually go into, into paying anything, let alone um, the interest rates. Because there's this talking point that comes up between sort of uh, that comes up from people who are kind of know what, uh, a bit about economics where they go, oh, yeah, the government shouldn't be scared to borrow right now to increase its spending because interest rates are so low. 
And again, that's not the MMT take. <laughs> the MMT take is the government can spend whatever it wants because it, it creates money when it spends. It, it's not going to run out of it. You know, the, the, the interest rate is set by the government. It d- really doesn't come into it. And, and also because um, the government and the private sector aren't competing for a limited pool of savings, which is the sort of loanable funds theory. That, you know, if the government borrows, quote unquote, borrows more, i.e. sells more bonds, does this asset swap where it swaps green dollars for yellow dollars or green pounds for yellow pounds. If, if it does more of that, then it crowds out um, uh, uh, the private sector's uh, uh the private sector also wants some of that money, wants to borrow some of that money for investment and it's crowding it out. And that's what pushes up interest rates. And it's actually not that, you know, that is the, uh, that's the old fashioned model. That's the neoclassical model of, of what affects interest rates. And it's just not that way at all. And it, I, I find it quite bizarre that, that um, really clever people still think that that's how it works. When we know that there's this thing called the monetary policy committee who decide what the interest rates going to be. And, you know, it, it, it really doesn't, you know, it's not, uh, it's really not, a, it, it's really not a, a floating thing that gets affected by government spending. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. You can find the Modern Monetary Theory podcast wherever you're listening to this. And I really do recommend it if you want to hear much more about details on MMT directly from the economists who are working on this stuff. The podcast is on Twitter at MMT Podcast where you can also find Christian and Patricia's own accounts if you want to follow them. They also have a Patreon, like we do, with bonus episodes, so check that out as well if you want even more stuff. And many thanks again to them for coming on the show. As for our show, we're on the web at physicspodcast.com. Any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like to hear about, feedback for these episodes, which I know is a little outside what we often talk about, please do let me know. I'd love to hear what you think, and the contact form is there. It goes to my email, I try to respond to everything that people send. If you found this useful, you can support the show on PayPal. Any donations are gratefully received. And you can subscribe to the Patreon at patreon.com slash physicalattraction, where you will find many bonus episodes, including the complete SoftBank series, which goes out for seven episodes or so, and some Climate 201 episodes ahead of their general release, as well as some episodes that are only on the Patreon for subscribers there. Thanks to those of you who have done that already. All of the details alongside where to find us on social media are on that website at physicspodcast.com. Until next time then, please do take care. big money and transform your home with new appliances now at menards we offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today check out top appliance brands including KitchenAid, maytag whirlpool amana and criterion upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at menards shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at menards.com save big money